There's no belief system here. This is science. You make your decision based on science, not by some type of, of paranoia. Right, so welcome back to episode three of Reason to Doubt. Today we're gonna go over anti-vaxxers and um, Jordan actually has a video for us to watch and we're gonna uh, critique and kind of go over some things. Did you want to talk about that a little bit? Yeah, so a buddy of ours uh, is in our unit, um, came from a very strict religious background but I'll, there was a if you looked at the Venn diagram of his old church and like conspiracy theorists, it would be a circle. Um, they apparently are very deep into like flat earth and vaccines are bad, just like everything you'd want. That's what they were about. So one of his friends um, responded to some meme he put on Facebook about vaccines and I engaged him and the guy was like, you know, I'm all about the evidence. You know, all I care about is like what's what what the science shows and the science shows that vaccines are harmful, which I was like, well, I don't think that's correct. But, you know, I'm always open to new evidence. So show me what you've got. And he gave me this video. So the video is Dr. Bergman's truth versus lies about flu vaccines, asterisk, updated asterisk. Um, and the guy, Dr. Bergman, goes over about 45 minutes the whole video and he talks about why not only do vaccines he kind of touches a little bit on the vaccines causing autism but his main focus is vaccines cause diseases and they so not only are they not effective they actually cause bad things um, and the reason I thought this was a great video to look at is because if you were just a layman looking through it and didn't examine like didn't look at any of the research he cites and stuff it looks super convincing because he's a doctor and he's citing medical journals and all these other doctors. So, and the stats he shows are very compelling. So if you didn't take the time to kind of break it down and really dig deep into yeah. it, you might think that he had a real good case. So I guess this is a good example of uh, where we can demonstrate uh, why it's good to be skeptical, first of all, but how to actually put skepticism into practice to evaluate claims and what steps you might take if you doubt a claim or if something just seems too good to be true or, or whatever. I think this is a good example of that. Yeah. I think we'll be able to, everyone can kind of follow along all you listeners at home and work with through us and you can check us as we go through it because Jared and I are both laymen on this subject. And on that note, I'd also like to say that Dr. Bergman is a layman on this subject. Dr. <laughs> uh, so Dr. Bergman is a chiropractor. Uh, he got a degree from, I thought this is a little strange. His degree is from Cleveland Chiropractic College in Los Angeles. So I'm not sure why it's called Cleveland College, but you know, maybe the guy's name who founded it was Cleveland. I don't know. Uh, but in Seth Detroit, he was from... No. <laughs> <laughs> right. I'm not sure where Dallas was from. <laughs> yeah. So, yeah. So he's a chiropractor. Now, that kind of leads into the argument from authority fallacy. And so the argument from authority fallacy is one where you say, my point is right because such and such says so. Doctor whomever, whoever you perceive as an authority. And there's a related kind of fallacy it's an ad hominem attack which means to the person you're kind of trying to discredit the source rather than the mm -hmm. argument where you say well their argument is not valid because they're not an authority 
So with that said, I am not saying that Dr. Bergman is wrong because he's a chiropractor. He could be 100% right. You know, like it's his claims that matter, not his expertise. That said, you're talking about a highly technical subject and all else being equal, an expert speaking within his field is probably more likely to be right than a layman who disagrees with him in his field. So as skeptics, it's important to keep in mind the source, what their background is, what their expertise is, not to say, oh, you're, you didn't go to college to be a physicist, therefore what you're saying is wrong. So sort of, so kind of recap this, just because somebody is an authority doesn't mean that their claim is accurate. And also do you have to examine what they're actually an authority in too, because that plays into whether or not we should weigh their claims more credibly or and this guy, I'm sure he knows all there is to know about being a chiropractor, but yeah. does he know about immunology? Well, we can get into chiropractor another time. Uh, <laughs> yeah. But yeah, so I think that's great. And then, um, so do we want to go and like actually just kind of play some of the clips? And you kind of already have a, a timeline set up of some of the claims that he makes. And so we can pause after we hear the claim and then kind of talk about how we would examine that claim. Well, I think just kind of broadly talking about the things that Dr. Bergman does, he often quotes evidence that doesn't say what he says it says. So it's important to check the source and actually read it and make sure he's being accurate and honest. He also quotes a lot of science from eyewitnesses or from experts unnamed and then never gives it. So... Uh, Christopher Hitchens was had had a phrase that which is asserted without evidence can be rejected without evidence. And so if someone you're in an argument with says, well, everyone knows X or, you know, such and such says X. And if you ask for a source, they can't give you one. Then, OK, then it's like they didn't say anything because they don't have any evidence and evidence is what matters. So uh, if you guys want to open up the video, we're kind of walk through the video step by step and just examine his claims in sequence. We'll play a quick clip of the claims so you can follow along and then we'll talk about it and the kind of process we follow in examining it and where we got our sources and all that sort of stuff. So I'm starting at one minute because it doesn't really say anything important before then. Though he does ironically talk, another thing that I thought this video is great on, he says... Dr. Bergman says right up front. What's your basis in it? I don't believe in it. No, this isn't religion. There's no belief system here. This is science. You make your decision based on science, not by some type of, of paranoia. Okay, so right now we're going to throw that away. We're going to only look at the science. Which I thought was super ironic, considering how he completely misuses the evidence. Yes. <laughs> I agree, Dr. Bergman. I wish you actually did that. <laughs> Dr. Bergman versus Dr. Bergman. Dr. Bergman versus Dr. Bergman. Did you watch the recent Pine Creek, Mike Winger versus Mike Winger? No, I saw it come up, though. That'd be funny. <laughs> That's fucking hilarious. All right. Now, first off, how many people have seen this type of picture before? Yeah. Okay, yeah. Yeah, it's, it's real popular. This can't happen. Do you understand what, how viruses work? Okay, now, now, now this is important because... How a virus works, a virus actually doesn't grow on its own. It's a parasite. If I was to give you a virus, that virus has to use your DNA in order to replicate. So if you give it 
to your brother. It's got to use his DNA. So as it successively transfers person to person to person, it gets weaker and weaker and weaker. So you might be saying, well, how can we put that in a vaccine and protect everyone? You can't. It doesn't work that way. So the picture that he was talking about there, if you don't have the video up, he showed a picture of the Spanish flu outbreak and it has all, all these people in just rows and rows of beds with nurses treating them. Um, and he talks about how that, meaning flu outbreaks, can't happen. This, to me, was a pretty bizarre claim. Like, it was so bizarre, I I doubted myself. Like, maybe I just completely don't understand how vaccines work. <laughs> <laughs> um, if right. viruses got weaker and weaker every time they jumped hosts, we probably wouldn't have viruses because that's how they survive, by jumping to different hosts. I think the, the quote that he says is like, you know, this can't happen. A virus doesn't grow on its own. It's a parasite, so it requires a host. And then when it transfers from one host to the next host, it gets weaker is, is what he's saying, which is the case. That would mean it would just weaken itself out of existence. Right. Like that begs the question, where did the full strength virus come from to begin with that started this epidemic? And why, it, right. if it can't happen, why do epidemics ever happen? Like, what is causing them, if not viruses? I, I don't know. He never says. Um, so for this claim, I just looked up. It was it was funny. I, I just Googled how do viruses work? And there was like every site I found was for like elementary school kids because that's the <laughs> level of claim we're dealing with here. But um, basically the way a virus works, it is true that they're a parasite. Um, in fact, some people don't even think they're alive. It depends on how you want to define it, I guess. But they're bags of DNA and sometimes they don't even have a coding and they generally work by injecting genetic material into the host cell. And that kind of hijacks, hijacks a cell and tells them to make new viruses, which the cell dutifully does until um, sometimes the viruses escape. Sometimes it explodes and spews them out. Depends on the virus. But yeah, that's basically how they work. Now it is true that some people are naturally immune and that's why viruses have to mutate and just because for instance a virus that works in birds may not work in humans necessarily you know right but yeah the whole going from one person to the next is it, i have no idea where he's getting that but if if you're just a lay person and you have this doctor telling you you know hey viruses don't work this way just by him claiming to be a doctor. Now, he never comes out and specifically says, I'm a chiropractor. I'm not an expert on this situation. He presents himself as if no. he's a doctor. Correct. In fact, um, one of my favorite quotes from the whole video is... Now, this is the sheet that comes. This is the, well, actually, booklet. No, you didn't get this one. Okay, this is doctor stuff. See, I'm a doctor, so I can actually read this stuff. Okay. But what he's doing here is being extremely deceitful about his actual qualifications as a doctor. He never once states that he's a chiropractor. And then he m represents himself as being an expert in medical, uh, in the medical field. It's like, wow, bro. Uh, cool. But in all reality, you're not a doctor. I mean, you're a well, chiropractor. So, yeah. And that's where you got a little bit of equivocation. He is a doctor in the sense that he has a Ph.D., However, in this context, if you say I am a doctor and you're talking about medicine, what people are going to assume you mean is you're a medical doctor. Right. Just like, for instance, if I said 
you can trust me about how this gear shaft works because I'm an engineer. If my job title is sanitation engineer and I'm really a janitor, I may be being factually correct, but I'm definitely misleading you. <laughs> well, I might trust the sanitation engineer over a nuclear engineer as far as a drive shaft. But... Well, yes, but this <laughs> nuclear engineer also has a mechanical degree, so eat it. You should trust me about a drive shaft unless that drive shaft's in a car because I hate cars. I'm probably the only mechanical engineer on the planet who cannot stand cars. In fact, I'll get a vicious bout of narcolepsy if you start talking about your car. <laughs> Posi traction. Yeah. But you talk, start talking about a Rankin cycle, I'm all over that. <laughs> That's when you lose me. <laughs> um, but the first real big claim he makes comes next when he talks about the Spanish flu. So if you look at this, the world pandemic, this is the, the one that everybody's advertising, it's fear cells, and they say between 20 and 50 million of the population of the world died, okay, from this massive virus that, well, that's kind of true, kind of not, it missed Greece, okay, so I guess being Greek protects you. As far as I could find out, and this, this was, the flu hit only the vaccinated. The people who refused the vaccines escaped the flu. You know, just like Greece, the entire country decided not to vaccinate. So the first piece of evidence he cites is that the vaccines or, or the Spanish flu missed Greece. And the reason he says is because they didn't vaccinate. So, you know, if you were Greek, you weren't vaccinated, therefore you didn't get Spanish flu. Ergo, Spanish flu caused by vaccines. I look for a while and it's actually really, really hard to find specific info on who was vaccinated at what rate from 1918. Almost, it's 100 years ago now. Yeah. Um, I did find a newspaper, uh, the Greek newspaper Thessalia, that was in like a history paper. I am not even going to attempt to pronounce those names because I will butcher them. But in La Infezioni and Medicina, 2015, they talk about the first announcement of the, the 1918 Spanish flu pandemic in Greece. <laughs> so I guess it didn't miss Greece so much. <laughs> and and even if it did miss Greece, correlation is not causation, right? So right. we don't, the, maybe the Spanish flu just never made it, you know, into the island of Greece. Like, well, it's a peninsula. But. Peninsula, yeah, so the peninsula of Greece. So um, maybe just didn't make it down that far south. Who knows? Uh, yeah, so that's a pretty weak claim that's it's just factually false. So that one's easy. So the next piece, he goes on for a little while about some conspiracy theory stuff about why vaccines were, it doesn't matter. that pharmaceutical companies are bad, just that's all he says. So anyway, um, around 3.30, he says. Of aspirin. And what we find out in exhuming these bodies that have died, they died of bacterial pneumonia, not viral. I, I know it's, it's kind of interesting, but the diseases, now this is a totally different um, illness. God, I almost said flu. It's a totally different illness that occurred back then. Now look at the, his description. It had characteristics of black death, added to typhoid, diphtheria, pneumonia, smallpox, and paralysis. So these people started to bleed, they started to cough up blood, they, their lungs filled up, paralysis all the diseases that people have been vaccinated for. So, so we're talking a few decades go by before we say, oh yeah, now we know what it is. Okay, it would happen to be a virus, except that's not true. 
see, what's interesting, and this is Dr. Dan Duffy, what they found out was that it wasn't. Okay, so, so when people say, look, it was actually a flu virus that killed people, this was out of uh, Emory University in Atlanta. They said that the discovery that it was not the flu that killed these people. So when you see those big signs that say it was the Spanish flu that killed people or the influenza virus, we now know that it was not the flu virus that killed those people. Okay, that the people in the epidemic died of bacterial infections such as strep. Okay, now you, now you know what the ignorant people are going to say? And I say ignorant, not because they're stupid, they just don't know. They say, well, yes, of course, okay? The flu virus weakened the person, then left without leaving a DNA trace, and then they developed bacterial pneumonia and then died. So here he says that it wasn't the flu vaccine, or sorry, it wasn't the flu virus that did it. It was actually bacteria. Bacteria was involved with the whole thing. It was bacterial pneumonia that killed everyone. And that's according to Dr. Dan Duffy at University of Emory, which sounds super uh, credible. Doctor working at university. As far as I can tell, Dr. Dan Duffy doesn't exist. I, I couldn't find him. <laughs> I tried. Uh, uh, but if Dr. Dan Duffy did exist, he certainly didn't tell anyone else at Emory University about his findings because according to Emory University, uh, the 1918 outbreak, outbreak was caused by the flu. So I guess he was a lone wolf there at the university. But more importantly, he talks about it being a bacterial infection. Nobody could have known it was a flu because it wasn't identified until later, right? Right. Um, there's a couple things that would undermine that. First of all, saying that it was people died from bacterial pneumonia doesn't mean it's not viral. But you can have secondary infections. That's a thing. Your immune system's compromised. Right. So, like, I get um, anytime I get a cold. Basically, at this point, my my lungs are particularly prone to infection. So, anytime I get a cold, which is viral, I will often get also a bacterial infection, which I then have to take antibiotics for in my lungs. So that's not. I assume it'll be bacterial pneumonia that kills me eventually. Um, <laughs> So it's nice to know how you're going to go, though. Yeah, I mean, and it's not too bad. I just feel really tired until I just slip into death. But anyways, so that claim wouldn't have any force on its own. But even worse, researchers have actually reconstructed the genome of the 1918 flu virus from hospital specimens and from frozen victims that were buried in permafrost from around the time. Uh, that happened in 2005. And... The particular, it was published in Nature 437 in 2005, characterization of the 1918 influenza virus polymerase genes. I'm showing off my layman creds right there. Um, so yeah, not only does his claim that it was secondary bacterial infection not mean that it wasn't viral, researchers have constructed the flu vaccine, or I keep saying vaccine. Researchers have reconstructed the flu virus. And it has the same characteristics as that reported about the Spanish flu, which is pretty much a, a death knell to his entire argument there. Right. So how would one go about kind of uncovering that? Like, what is it about this claim that should should make somebody question it, first of all? Well, I think the first thing that one should look at, like what should strike one right up, right up front is it's called the Spanish flu. Every university talks about the Spanish flu being a virus. So he's saying the Spanish flu wasn't a virus. It was a bacterial infection. So you can key in on those key words, you know, bacterial infection, Spanish flu, things like that. And then just use Google Scholar. That's all I did. And 
search up these things. He also puts up some sources. It's good to check his sources. Um, and just Google simple questions. Was it a vaccine? And then look at what you get. But don't just take everything. Look for peer-reviewed journals. Look for actual universities that are publishing things written right. by doctors who are experts in the field. Now, I don't think we've touched on peer review before, but I think it might be uh, important to kind of explain why peer reviewed journals are like the the cream of the crop when it comes to scientific journals. Sure. I mean, bias is a thing. Mistakes are a thing. And scientists are humans, too. So even if they have the best of intentions and do the best work they can, Scientists are going to make mistakes. Sometimes their biases will influence their judgment. So the peer review system exists so that someone else who is an expert who can identify these kind of things is kind of looking over their shoulder and said, doesn't necessarily have to agree with what they're saying, but says, yes, your methods are rigorous. Your um, conclusions follow from the evidence, et cetera. Right. And then so other, other experts will also use the peer review process to critique them. So that there's more than just the one paper. You also have to look at like what other people have said about the same paper. Right. So for a paper or an article to pass peer review, I mean, it, it's a lot better than somebody just putting something on the internet. They're, it's being checked multiple times from multiple different angles against other sources on the subject. Right. Now, that's not to say that there's no mistakes in peer review journals. There, no. Of course there are. Like, in, in fact, that you can write, you can see all kinds of peer-reviewed articles on the problems with peer review. So yeah. it, it doesn't make it infallible. But what it does do is it makes it more credible. And so like if we're going to try to look up something on the internet, because that's where most of us are going to do it, it's better to try to look for peer-reviewed journals on Google Scholar or some other, if you have a, a local library that has access to like EBSCOhost or some service like that, as opposed to just looking up Wikipedia articles. Um, even though they have citations, if you're going to look at Wikipedia, you need to look at the sources that are being cited on Wikipedia. Exactly. And anybody, even if they are an immunologist, they just write in their blog, they can write whatever they want. And it doesn't need to have any kind of justification whatsoever. Right. That doesn't fly in peer review. Blogs should be the last place you're looking right. for uh, I, evidence. I'll use blogs, one, if I read a paper and I don't understand everything. Sometimes it could be useful to go to a different, like a blog run by an expert who's kind of breaking it down. Right. It's just kind of like commentary on the stuff yeah, you don't sometimes understand. Sometimes commentary and I can kind of check it against different sources. Or it can also be useful because often they'll cite sources. It can be a useful jumping off point to find good sources. Um, also, something that people might not be aware of, just because it looks peer-reviewed doesn't mean it is. There's a lot of fake for-profit academic mm -hmm. journals out there. So one real easy way to check is go to the master journals list, just Google master journals list and check that. And if it's on the master journals list, it's almost yeah. always going to be credible. Well, I know, I know Google scholar and uh, like I use EBSCOhost cause I have access to that still, but they, um, they actually have a, a filter and you can actually select. I only want to see peer reviewed articles. So we go from the Spanish flu, which was 1918, to the next big thing that vaccines are credited for, smallpox. Now, now, what do the, the proponents, the absolute ignorant people that promote vaccination say? Wiped out smallpox and it wiped out polio. Really? Did it? Okay. You know, why didn't you get the flu shot this year? I don't believe it. No. Forget the religion aspect. Okay. 
Let's go in and this. Did it wipe out smallpox? Well, first off, only 10% of the world's population was vaccinated with smallpox. Were they really good and hit the only 10% that had smallpox? Oh, is there something in the air? Okay, so, so no, that's ridiculous. It doesn't work that way. No. In fact, they weren't really good and hit the only 10% of smallpox. This is a case of correlation sort of thing. Um, so he scoffs when he's like, oh, only 10% of the population was ever vaccinated. There's no way that the vaccine was responsible for wiping out smallpox. And again, if you just took it on its face, yeah, I mean, if you have to be vaccinated for a vaccine to work, right? So only if 10%, that, yeah, that, that doesn't make sense at all. But in fact, that's actually a strategy that people use to combat smallpox because it's super expensive to vaccinate everybody. Specifically, it's called ring vaccination. So it's kind of like how you would use, if you're fighting a forest fire, if there's a fire somewhere, you can burn the area around it so the fire can't keep going. If there was an outbreak, they'd rush in, they'd vaccinate everybody in that area and all the surrounding areas. And then the virus, hopefully, wouldn't have any more hosts to jump to. So it would jump to all the hosts it could, but everyone's vaccinated, so it eventually can't find anyone else to jump to, and it dies. And in that way, you can wipe out the disease without vaccinating the entire world. And this only works if it's kind of isolated already, so it was already kind of fought. It was on the brink, mm -hmm. but that's what they used to put the final nail on the coffin and eradicate it completely, is starve it of hosts. So what he's doing here is he's taking information that is actually factual, 10%, mm -hmm. let's say, uh, was vaccinated, but he's skewing it to um, say that to kind of play on this, on our logic, so to speak, like, oh, that makes perfect sense. If 10% were only vaccinated, then there's no way it could have stuffed it out because like, exactly. And he's not really explaining how the these tactics are used and exactly. And so it's either out of ignorance or because he's being intentionally deceptive. Those are the only two options. Right. Let's assume ignorance for now. Yeah, I'll be as nice as I can and assume he just doesn't know what the hell he's talking about. Now he does put up some um, some information, and I didn't wasn't able to check this out, but he says that of the vaccinated persons. Uh, 47,000-ish came down with smallpox, and of those, 16-ish thousand actually died. Okay, so, so no, that's ridiculous. It doesn't work that way. Okay, so what happens is, see, if you're trying to sell us a, um, a product, what you got to do is create a panic. So what they did is they, they went, went to the Philippines, which they really didn't have a smallpox epidemic, but, you know, let's go to the Philippines. They injected 3 million natives, 3,285,000 natives. Okay, so, so, so what happens, so we inject 3 million of these people, and sure enough, 47,000 came down with smallpox. 16,000 of them died. So we take a population that didn't have a smallpox problem, and then 16,000 people died. So what does that do? Does that make you comforted or scared? So he's using this to say, like, even the vaccinated people still got smallpox, and then even of those, people still died. Yeah, so if you actually look at the stats from that time, which I did, and that was fun. Um, <laughs> yeah, finding papers from the 20s is a blast, let me tell you, because all of them are digital and easily searched. Well, uh, side note. If you're truly interested in, in a subject and it has information from pack in the past and you really want to dig into it, go to your local university 
because there are librarians who get paid to help do research and they usually just sit around and do nothing because nobody takes advantage of them. Yep. And so, they would love you if you'd come yes. and ask about this sort of stuff. Like, hey, uh, I want to research the spine of the you know smallpox from you know nineteen twenty, and they'd be like, oh, great, let's go this way and blow off some journals. And yeah, exactly. So if you actually look at reports from that period of time, Jay McVale, smallpox and vaccination in the Philippines. This paper was free, so if you just Google that, you can find it. Uh, that number is the total number that died in nineteen nineteen. The total number that died was 45,873, according to this report. Um, he gives some other numbers, like 47,000 or something like that. Whatever. Close enough. Sure. Right. 40 some odd thousand. Um, but if you look at V. Heiser and C. Leach, vaccination in the Philippines still effective from 1922, they actually say precisely the opposite. It's not that most people who were vaccinated got diseases they said the people who didn't get vaccinated were more likely to get smallpox so it's just straight up false um so what he did was he said there was this huge vaccination campaign around that time all of these people got sick because there was this huge vaccination campaign everyone was vaccinated therefore this number is all the people who were vaccinated who died so he took a number which was probably he got it from somewhere it's close enough to correct and then inferred whatever he wanted from there and again, unless you did the work and checked his sources, you'd never know because he's a doctor. Why would he lie to you? So he doesn't actually provide any data. He doesn't actually provide a source. But if you check the sources, there doesn't appear to be any basis in reality. He's basically taking a number, drawing whatever kind of conclusion he wants to draw from it, and then assuming you're not going to check. Right. And so that's another thing, too. If somebody provides you with numbers or data... Always ask, where did you get it? Where did you get that? Look at it if you want to make sure. And then see what the original intent of that data was. Right. Because as we saw from earlier with the Spanish flu number, or sorry, with the ring vaccine number, and as we will see later, just because the number is correct doesn't mean it's he's using it correctly. Correct. Or it's incorrect. Okay. So, uh, we've gone to the Spanish flu, we've gone to smallpox, next for the big hitter in vaccine success stories, polio. Everyone always hears that, you're out vaccinated, I hope you enjoy polio. You know, that's like the kingpin number. Why vaccinate? Because you don't want to get paralyzed and die. So, according to Dr. Bergman, vaccines cause polio. Oh no. But how is that possible? Wipe out smallpox or wipe out polio? Let's look at polio. Now, polio, I, I'll get people in, you know, they'll be, you know, 78 years old. They've been in the medical world for a lot of years. And they say, look, I remember the iron lungs. I remember it going through. Really? Well, let's find out. So first off, 95% of everybody that got the polio, that, that got polio, recovered. It was just like a little cold. Okay, 5% came down with a little bit of um, more illness, muscle aches, stiff joints, things like that. It turned out that one out of every thousand actually had paralysis. So that we're talking one-tenth of one percent of the people that got polio really had a severe problem. So the five percent number um, is more or less correct. From what I saw, 72% have no symptoms, while 25% have cold-like symptoms. Paralysis only occurs in a very small percentage. So as far as I can tell, that's correct. But then he goes on to... Now, now, why did it occur just in the 50s? 
What, what, what was the conditions like? Okay, see, see, remember, I'm under the assumption that the Spanish flu really wasn't the Spanish flu, that it occurred because of the medical practices and the environment. So what happened in the 50s? Well, let's take a look at this. Now, Vera Schreiber, a brilliant gal. See, at the time in the 50s, two diseases had the exact same symptoms, meningitis and polio. Now, now, polio was really, really high at the time meningitis was really low. So what they did is, if you got vaccine and you came down with the same symptoms, well, you couldn't have polio because you got the vaccine, so it was meningitis. So what she found out in the research is everyone got vaccinated with polio, but the meningitis cases went through the roof. So now when you hear aseptic viral meningitis or meningitis outbreak, think polio. Okay, so he starts off quoting something correct, and then he quotes Vera Schneiber, right? And her quote-unquote research. If you look into it, um, Vera Schneiber is, she does have a doctorate. She was a geologist. Now, I've done the math, and geology is actually not a medical science. Wait, are you serious? Yeah. Contrary to popular belief, geologists do not spend a large portion of their day studying diseases. I think she was also a paleontologist. So maybe that's where her quote-unquote expertise comes from. Again, doesn't mean she's wrong but we should always check the source to see how reliable it's likely to be. Now, what's interesting though, and this is out of the New England Journal of Medicine, just, just uh, 1995, why injections increase the risk of polio is unclear. This means that all the vaccinations that we're giving today actually caused polio or polio-like symptoms. What she found out in research, if you had one shot, you had eight times, eight times the amount. And this is shots of any type of variety. It turns out that injecting foreign proteins into your bloodstream cause a hypersensitivity to the immune system. If you've had nine injections, 27 times more likely to get polio, 10, you, I mean, you can see polio increases. Now, what do the New England Journal of Medicine say? Why the injections increase the risk of polio, we just don't know. We don't, okay? Nevertheless, these studies and others indicate that injections must be avoided in countries with endemic poliomyelitis. Health authorities believe that all unnecessary injections should be avoided as well. Unnecessary injections, unnecessary, which ones are necessary? Okay, let's actually find this out. Well, let's look way back in 1949, right before the epidemic, right before the polio epidemic. Now, this is European Medical Journal. Researchers have known since the early 1900s that paralytic poliomyelitis often started at the site of the injection. Um, but here, more interestingly, he cites the New England Journal of Medicine, 1995, in this video. Doesn't say, I'm sure there was a lot that came out of the New England Journal of Medicine in 1995. He's assuming you're never going to check. But joke's on him, because I totally did. <laughs> yeah, the entire journal from 1995. <laughs> right. I'm just quoting uh, it all. So here's another tip. <clears throat> if he quotes something, put in keywords from the quote and the journal. You'll usually be able to find the article, even if the person who quoted it didn't give you it. In this case, it was an article by P. Wright and D. Carzon, minimizing the risk associated with the prevention of polio. Polio. That thing. Uh, New England Journal of Medicine, Volume 332, Number 8, 1995. Eat that, Dr. Bergman. <laughs> so what does this article actually say? So what this article says, um, what he says it says, the part that he talks about, 
is that injections increase the risk of the paralysis. So that getting the vaccine actually made you more likely to have the really bad effect. So if you didn't have vaccines at all, you were 99% likely you weren't, even if you got polio, you weren't going to have any kind of, you were going to have a cold and you were going to be fine afterwards. But if you got the vaccine, holy cow, now you're definitely going to get paralyzed. Bad move, kid. Um, but if you actually read the research, what Wright and Carson were talking about were vaccination practices in Romania. And in Romania, in the region that they were examining, they did note that not just the polio vaccine, but all injections were correlated with an increase in polio symptoms. But if you read the article and what the authors draw from it, what they say is, in industrialized countries where there is a state-of-the-art medical care, when recommended schedules of immunizations are followed, there is no evidence that intramuscular injections provoke vaccine-associated paralysis. In particular, the data from Romania must not be allowed to detract from the impressive gains in the control of polio being achieved with the widespread use of the vaccine. Hmm. So it said the exact opposite of what he was trying to portray to say. Right. So here's another case where he's using a true statement to draw a false conclusion. What the authors are talking about, what they say is you need to use the vaccines correctly and follow the guidelines that you're supposed to follow. And in places where that happens, we don't see this. Now, is this an example of quote mining? Did he go into this article, pull out a quote that, that agreed with what he said, and then just took that out of context? Or is he totally misrepresenting the, their position? I'm not sure because the point the point was examining like that the paper is so specific mm -hmm. they weren't like examining polio in general they weren't examining the vaccine across they were talking about how the vaccine and other injections not just the vaccine cause this thing in romania in this very specific time most papers are very specific that's just the nature of papers so he i guess you could see it as quote mining because he definitely took the part he liked just didn't mention the rest of it. So how long did it take you to actually look this up? I mean, was it a couple minutes like, ooh, New England Journal of Medicine, 1995. Maybe. Poliomyelitis, ba-boom. I don't know. 10 minutes, maybe. Yeah. So and, it, it I, didn't take you that long. To it, really it was minutes, it. certainly. Yeah. It wasn't that long. He actually quotes another article. Um, he cites the Journal of Infectious Diseases. Again, he doesn't actually cite the article. He just says the whole journal. Uh, but... If you Google what he says, you find it. It's by Sutter. Um, they say a similar thing. They talk about... So, he, again, he says that Sutter is talking about how the polio vaccine causes paralysis. But, in fact, what Sutter is saying, people who don't follow the WHO recommendations have this problem, but people who do don't. Right. So he's taking it out of context. And the worst part is he specifically... He, he ignores what the research specifically says. Like he says that the polio vaccine causes the paralysis end statement when the researchers themselves specifically say that is not the case. And that, that I think can't be credited to incompetence. Mm -hmm. You know, either I don't even think you, you could have quote mine that without being intentional. Yeah. I mean, that's, that's far beyond shoddy research. That's right. That's I'm going to take the part of the research I like and ignore everything else. Right. Now, again, from somebody who's just, he's now this, he's given a presentation at, a, I think a bookstore or a library or something. Looks like it. 
But um, if you're just sitting out in the crowd and you hear this, and you don't have Google right at your, you fingertips. don't have Google right in front of you. Uh, what you do is you just take some notes. You go home. You check it out. Um, but so what's what's up with this uh, this quote here though, where he says after one polio shot. Um, they were eight times more likely to get polio. After nine, they were 27. After 10, they were 127 more times. Did Were you able to look into that claim at all? No. That is a claim that he credits to the geologist slash paleontologist Vera okay. Schneiber. And I wasn't able to actually find any of her research. Gotcha. Um, but considering that the research from immunologists and peer-reviewed sources directly contradict what he said... That doesn't cause me to lose a ton of sleep. Right. And and it's important, too, to note that there's all this research from people who are experts in the field, and yet he is reliant on somebody who is a geologist and a paleontologist in order to support his, his statement. Right. So when convenient, he quotes people who are in the field. He quotes the part he likes and not the part he doesn't. And all the other times, he quotes other laymen who agree with him. Right. So it should be a, a key that, you know, maybe something's a little off here. Or we need to dig into this a little further. Right. Why is he avoiding what other researchers have to say and only talking about people who are have a vested interest in agreeing with him? Right. Now, I think we kind of hit the, uh, you know, some of the vaccines, um, uh, how they're presenting this information that vaccines are actually causing these diseases. Um, but what about the fact that he makes a claim later on in the video that diseases actually the uh, the rate of diseases go down with with the absence of vaccines basically what i want you to understand is diseases were declining because of healthy sanitary conditions good road systems so we actually got appropriate nutrients okay and uh, good sewage good sanitation it's not the vaccines it's not injecting foreign viral proteins that caused it yeah, so he spends a lot of time talking about how before vaccines are introduced, the rate of disease goes down. And what he credits to is increases in health, sanitation, nutrition over this period of time. It's right at the end of the Industrial Revolution, basically. So we're going from, you've always seen those Victorian England movies where there's just people are just dumping their chamber pots in the street. And, you know, right. Doctors don't wash their hands and all that stuff. And then all of a sudden realize, oh, germs are a real thing. Maybe we should wash our hands and, you know, rinse off our knives in between patients and stuff and like that. And not throw our poop out our window on yeah. our neighbor. Yeah, exactly. And this is actually one of the small one of the things, one of the only things in the video that I wholeheartedly agreed on. I I don't think I even looked it up, to be honest, because it seems <laughs> like, well, sure, if you stop drinking poop water, you'll get sick less. Like, <laughs> <laughs> like yeah, totally, man. Uh, so I think he's probably correct that a huge contributor of the drop in diseases was the fact that people had healthier practices. Mm -hmm. However, that doesn't mean that vaccines had no effect. You know, like there's going to be a limited range with any treatment as to how effective it is. You know? So even if his claim is completely true that 90% of the reduction from say 1600 to 1900 was due to health and sanitation, that doesn't mean the vaccines aren't effective. Right. And just because you're vaccinated doesn't mean that you're not going to get the disease. Yes. Which leads beautifully into my favorite part of the whole video. My favorite claim. He talks about four 
outbreaks that happened in America, in America. America. Now, this was in 2001, chickenpox outbreak. See, if you go in, and let's say you're responsible parents or responsible citizens, and you sign that waiver, what the school's going to say is, when we get an outbreak, you take your child out of school. Cool with me. I don't understand how that works. Does anybody? I mean, if, if my kid's not vaccinated, isn't my kid the only one at risk? Well, yeah, actually, I do understand how that works. Allow me to explain it to you, Dr. Bergman. Vaccines are not 100% effective. I'll allow you to pick yourself up off the floor. No treatment is 100% effective. I guess maybe abstinence is probably 100% effective in preventing pregnancies. I don't know. There's a thing called hot tubs. That's true. And toilet seats <laughs> and turkey basters and whatnot. Um, but pretty much nothing is 100% effective. That's just reality. The right. vaccine could have been expired. It could have been improperly administered. It just doesn't work every time. You know, all kinds of reasons why it could fail. So this is actually something that anti-vaxxers hammer all the freaking time. Why should it matter if I don't get vaccinated? It's only my decision. It only affects me. If you're right, then the only person who will be hurt is me. So stay out of my business. Right. And that would be true if and only if vaccines were 100 percent effective. But they're not. Right. And there are certain people in the population who are not able to get vaccines, whether because their uh, immune systems are compromised Um they have, you know, some of their kind of conditions which prevent them from getting the vaccine. Right. So even if his claim, even if his conceit was correct, there would still be vulnerabilities. But the fact is that vaccines don't work all the time, which means that the more you're exposed to a disease, even if you're vaccinated, the more likely it is you'll contract it. So if you watch the video, he puts up four cool graphs and then he says, but this stuff here. 86% um, of the chickenpox outbreak, they were already vaccinated. This one here was a measles outbreak in Texas in 1985. 99% of the, them were vaccinated. So I guess the chickenpox vaccine and measles vaccine doesn't really protect you. Pertussis, in 1993, 90% of the people that had the outbreak were vaccinated. I'm sorry, does that mean that pertussis vaccine doesn't really work? Okay, this one here, 92% of mumps were vaccinated. Any study that shows that these protect at all, at all? And, and it sounds pretty, sounds pretty crazy. Right. If most of the people who got sick are vaccinated, clearly the vaccines, the vaccines don't work, right? If, if they worked, the people who are vaccinated wouldn't have gotten sick. But the way it works in reality is that vaccines, first of all, reduce the chance that you'll get affected, but not to zero. And they also reduce the severity if you do get infected. So... If I'm vaccinated and I get exposed to a person, I have a certain percentage chance of getting infected. And if I'm exposed to another person, that chance goes up. The more you're exposed, the more likely it is you'll get infected. I think that's pretty common sense, pretty obvious. So if you actually dig into the numbers and he gives you the sources, this is one where he actually cites them very specifically. If you look at the graph, it's very easy to pull up these numbers. And if you look at the numbers, they are correct. It is true, for example, that in Oregon, 86% of the people were vaccinated. Completely factual. That is a meaningless number. It tells you absolutely nothing. Because what it does, the part that it's missing, the vital piece, is how many people were vaccinated in total. Uh, in this case, 97% of the population at large had received the vaccine. 
97% of all the kids in this school, 97% of them were vaccinated. So of course, most of the people who got sick were vaccinated. There's just a lot more of them. Right. And what he's doing here is quoting 86% of the victims, victims, he mm -hmm. uses that word, were vaccinated. So 86% of the people who got sick were vaccinated. But that number doesn't actually even tell you, like, if you have 97% of the population, that doesn't mean that 86% of the population got sick is what he's trying to make this out to seem. So of the people who got infected, 86% um, of them were vaccinated. That is true. However, of the total population of vaccinated students, only 12% who were exposed, so students who were vaccinated, who were exposed to chickenpox, 12% of them got chickenpox. By comparison, 43% of the unvaccinated kids got chickenpox. Hmm, interesting. That is a much more valuable number. Now, granted, if you actually dig into the the digits, the numbers start to get kind of small, like the number of unvaccinated kids. There's only seven of them total. So I wouldn't weigh too much into the exact 43% because, you know, you want a good sample size. That's a very small sample size. So, mm -hmm. but the important thing is 12% of a much larger sample size, only them, only 12% got infected. That shows the efficacy of the vaccine. If you were a random vaccinated kid, you had a much better chance of avoiding being sick because you were vaccinated. And that doesn't even talk about how severe the disease was. Right. That's just a binary. Did you have it or not? It doesn't say right. anything about how severe it was. Because technically the way a vaccine works is it's actually putting the disease in your body so your body can build um, antibodies for it. Right. So even if you get it, you tend to get it way less. Like the right. severity also is much less. So because your body's already got started on working on defense, basically. Right. So this kind of underplays the efficacy of vaccines. And that's so. So it's cool here. He uses just like before. He uses accurate numbers. If you check the sources, the numbers are correct. But if you actually read what's going on. He's being very dishonest about what the numbers mean. So this is a case where it's important not only to examine the claim, but also examine the context of which the claim was being made. Right. So the claim was 86% of people who were infected were vaccinated. But the context with that is what is more important. Right. Just having a number and the number being valid doesn't mean the conclusion he draws from that correct number is valid. Right. So you got to check both pieces. Another just little fun aside, the pertussis number that he quotes, that is by a, it, it's in some anti-vaxxer book written by a guy who has a bachelor's in psychology. So hmm. not peer reviewed, not written by an immunologist, not in any kind of reputable source, basically. Interesting. Um, but he lists it right alongside three other sources that are from very reputable sources. Once the CDC, you've got um, WHO sources there. Oh, so and also this guy. It could just be a way to try to slip in information into, you know, like yeah. putting a bad apple in with a bunch of good apples so you don't see the bad apple. Or it could just be that this guy had the right numbers, but he's not an expert. Anymore. Right. So you've got pediatrics, peer-reviewed journal, New England Journal of Med Medicine, peer-reviewed journal, CDC, obviously an expert. And then this other guy. Yep. So, um, 
I feel like I'm beating a dead horse here. <laughs> maybe the you, horse, the horse is kicking still. We should maybe, maybe the horse was uh what should have gotten vaccinated. Yeah. Um. So here's Can you another one from being kicked. And this this actually this claim he makes is super easy to check. Um. So if you weren't sure how to check any of the other claims, check this one. Um. He comes in. I did a good timestamp here. Thirty three twenty. Now this is. Um, an actual study out of uh, Lancet, now, no, no, the Cochrane database. They said there is zero, zero percent effectiveness of the influenza vaccine in kids. Zero percent effectiveness. However, in 2002, the U.S. government said we can now inject kids under five. So every vaccine you give to your kids, completely worthless. Well, he's talking specifically about the flu vaccine, right? But he yes, makes sorry, seem... sorry. Yes. Yeah. He says the flu vaccine has 0% effectiveness in children. Now, it's funny. If you actually look at the video, so if you got it up, check it. The graphic he has says children under two years of age, 0% effective. That's not what he says out loud, though. So he's purposely, I mean, this is, this is a fear-mongering tactic, I think, too. So. Yeah, definitely fear-mongering he's kind of downplaying that part. But regardless, we still give vaccines or, or he's saying we shouldn't give vaccines to kids on the basis of this study. And he's saying all kids when really what the study was saying was children under two. And Well, the, vac the study doesn't even say that though. So if you go to the paper that he cites, which is, and if, for those listening at home, if you check out the our Facebook page. I'm going to post all of my sources and the whole rebuttal I did on the Facebook page. So done all the work for you this time, <laughs> uh, but I'm not going to do it every time. So make sure you check it yourself. So if you check the, um, the and make sure you check Jordan too. Oh yeah, absolutely. hundred <clears throat> percent. One of the first things I say in the paper is I am not a doctor. I'm not a nurse. I'm not even a freaking medic. I don't know anything. There is no at all about medicine, which is why I quote the people who know way more than me. So, Totally check all of my sources, make sure I'm not being an idiot. Uh, but the paper written by Smith et al. That's my favorite thing. I can't pronounce this guy et al. That's everybody. <laughs> yeah. um, vaccines for preventing influenza in healthy children by, in the Cochrane database, and it's free. So, what the paper says, and it actually says it over and over and over and over again, at least like six times, it says it, is that they couldn't find enough data for children under two. What it actually is, the paper is actually a meta paper. It, it's meta research. And what that means- Look at all these other studies and- Yeah, exactly. It, it, it kind of like lumps all the studies together on this one topic and try to stuff, use all of them to get good trends. And part of any meta study is establishing criteria for what you're going to include and what you're not. So in this meta-study, they said we couldn't find enough data on children under the two. So we're just not going to include it in our study. That is not saying that it had zero effectiveness. That's saying we didn't have enough data to make a statement. Hmm. Uh, so this isn't even like this isn't even like quote mining. This is like straight misrepresentation of what the the paper was saying. Yeah, and it's even worse than that because they do quote, they do cite two sources so that they said we found these two studies 
on children under two, but we didn't find that the data size, it wasn't big enough, so we're not going to include it. But if you go and read those sources, what they found was, uh, in one paper, it report differences in incidence of influenza in one-year-olds of 17% and 86%. So that means that um, there was a huge benefit for have in one-year-olds and 24% and 96% in two-year-olds versus the placebo. So in other words, vaccines were tremendously effective for children or two, but there were only two studies with small sample sizes, so they didn't include it. Hmm. Then, and, and just going from the children thing, because he uses, oh, children under two, no data, therefore zero, therefore don't vaccinate any children. That's the exact opposite of what the paper says. They explicitly state, and I quote, comparison shows that live attenuated vaccines have 79% overall efficacy, although we could find no usable data for the below two age group. It lit in black and white. Like there's no way to read that and and come with with it has zero percent effectiveness. It's the opposite of what Bergman says. The opposite. Right. I mean, we could go through here and like pick apart every single claim that he makes, but th this is a clear instance of somebody being deceitful. Um, now, my question is why he obviously knows that he's that the information he's peddling is wrong. He obviously knows that he's being deceitful and that there's evidence out there to support the contrary. But what benefit does he get from this? Unless he thinks it's like some overarching conspiracy or something and he's true. I don't get it at all. That's actually the, so the gentleman that started this whole conversation, when I went, I did the effort and I went through and did my research and I said, here you go. This is why he's wrong. What he said was, well, what, what benefit would he have in lying? He's, you're definitely wrong. He didn't actually refute anything I said. Huh. He just said, well, you're definitely wrong. Why would Dr. Bergman lie? It's a big conspiracy. He, he immediately went from, I want data to, you know, tinfoil hat. Yeah. No, no, no. <laughs> no never, never mind. Not that kind of data. <laughs> <laughs> I wanted data that agrees with me. <laughs> that kind of data. Uh, but no, so and at the end of the day, I don't know. Like, I'm not Dr. Bergman. Yeah. I mean, he definitely makes his money off of people who are anti-vaxxers. His whole practice is based on that. Right. So, I mean, it, it could be as simple as that. It could just be he has monetary uh, benefit from it. Um, now, the, the one thing I would say is, like, you can't go around questioning everything, right? You can't say, oh, wait, because I get in trouble for this a lot, especially with my wife. Uh, I'm a skeptical person by nature. And so, like, I question everything. But it gets me into trouble. So you can't do that. So what you have to kind of pick and choose, like, is this claim really going to affect me? Like, is what this person's saying have impact on my life? If not, just forget about it. But in this case with vaccines, especially if you're a parent or you have kids or you're deciding whether or not to get vaccinated yourself, this is a big issue. If you were to fall into this trap of all this deceit, and this is an example of how they get you into thinking that vaccines are not effective or the contrary actually gets you sick, they start presenting this information, then you're gonna think that all vaccines are bad. So like, this is the kind of stuff where it really is important to take your time, look at the information that's being presented, do your research, you know, and, and figure out for yourself whether or not it's, it's a truth claim. Right, and Dr. Bergman, maybe he's just completely off the deep end and he's so convinced already that he just somehow filters out like his data mining 
somehow in his mind that is still presenting the truth, even though he's ignoring the evidence he's reading. I don't know. Right. Or maybe he's just a charlatan, but I'm sure that most of the people who are citing his stuff and like the anti-vaxxers you run into, I think that their motivations are pure. Like they want to make their family better. They want everyone like they, what they want is the same thing that we want, which is everyone to be healthier and safer and everything. So it's not that anti-vaxxers are like demons or something out to hurt everybody. They're just perhaps misinformed and aren't aware of the evidence as it actually exists. Right. And a, a lot of times too, what I've noticed, cause I, in preparation for this, I watched a lot of um, anti-vaxxer videos. Now they don't call themselves anti-vaxxers. Obviously not. Yeah. <laughs> but I watched a lot of anti-vaxxer videos on YouTube and, what really struck me was that it's an emotional thing. Most of these parents choose not to vaccinate because they have an emotional connection to it. They have anecdotes of having a friend who had a kid get sick when they were vaccinated, or they have anecdotes of their own children who were, you know, got autism because they were vaccinated. These are the claims anyways. And so now they have this emotional connection to it, which is even harder to break through with, with evidence because in their mind, you evidence doesn't matter anymore. Their own experience trumps your evidence. Right. And that's a really hard mountain to climb. And at the end of the day, if a person just doesn't want to believe it, then they won't. Right. You know, but in my experience, the best thing you can do is rather than jumping on a person and saying, oh, you're an idiot. And here's why in black and white, as much fun as that can be sometimes. I um, mean, I've definitely done it myself, but you tend to get better results having a more humble approach, you know, hearing them out, affirming the good things that they're saying. You know, I agree we should defend children. I agree that, you know, we should look out for whatever's best for everyone. So why don't we work together to, to do that? Mm-hmm. You know, um, and when it comes to anecdotes, those are really hard to break because it's just the way humans are wired. What what some scientists in a lab coat said a thousand miles from here doesn't matter as much as what my neighbor told me, you right. know, but that's where you've got that, those biases, everyone's biased and it's very easy to listen. We're, we're very good at getting the one hit, you know, we remember the one time we got vaccinated and we got sick. We you don't, don't see yeah, all I'm of not. the times you didn't get polio. Right. <laughs> <laughs> I don't remember the nine times I didn't get polio. <laughs> exactly. Right. Yeah. It, so if you actually want to defend children, then you should you, there, there's again, just like we said in episode one, you've got nothing to fear from good, solid evidence. Right. You know, and if you're the kind of person, another thing the guy brought up was, Oh, well, everyone's, it's just a conspiracy. Like, Seriously, do you think that all of the tens of thousands of met every single one of them is just a vicious child hating murderer who cares about nothing but whining their pockets like not a single one of them gotten in medicine in order to help people? Not a one. I don't think so. I mean, they're all. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. That, that's why they go into the depths of Africa and impoverished countries and go without running water for months, distributing vaccines because they want to get rich. That's what it is. <laughs> well, I mean, I think, it, I think it's important to, you know, just to, to recognize that no matter what the subject is, 
what the information being presented is, it's important to examine the claims. Um, you know, it goes back to to what you were talking about earlier with the Hitchens. Um, that which is asserted without evidence can be dismissed without evidence. Exactly. So, I mean, he makes a lot of assertions without evidence. So they may sound all fine and dandy, but until you know whether or not there's evidence to support that, should you believe in that claim? And the answer is no. If you want to find out, go and do the research. The claim may be accurate, but until you have the evidence to support it, you should not accept it as truth. The default position is one of skepticism. Right. Cool. Well, uh, I think we've uh, we've definitely beat this horse uh, again. Wait, we definitely beat this dead horse? Yeah. Anyways. It's thoroughly dead. It's infected with polio, smallpox, and the Spanish flu. We have given this horse so many vaccines that it's died 20 times. Exactly. Or 18 times, or how many times polio kills you, I forget, according to our geologist friend. That's our show. Thanks for listening, guys. And until next time, remember, you've always got reason to doubt. Yeah, so I guess we can do a smallpox. Let me find. Did I put a timestamp here? I Unfortunately, didn't. you did not. Fuck me. What the fuck was I? What, what an unprofessional move.